Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. This is Hugh Ballou. Welcome to this episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. We're pushing seven years of this, this series of interviews with people that have something to share, people that have been there, done it, have experience, sometimes have the, have the trophy, sometimes have the scars. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I'm introduced as a speaker, as an expert. And I used to shun that say, no, 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 I'm a student of leadership, but I am a student of, of leadership. But what gives me the status of an expert is I've probably because I'm older, I've made more mistakes than anybody else. And we call those learning opportunities. So our goal here is to help leaders in the trenches think differently, embrace some new concepts, and install some of those processes and ideas into the organization that you lead. We're, we're talking specifically to you, those of you right now in this tough time uh, leading a nonprofit or religious organization, your nonprofit executive. think together, how do we create a, not a new normal, but a new radical. We've got to do things radically different as we go forward. So I'm speaking with Kit Welchel today, and he's in Minnesota. And Kit, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Tell people a little bit about yourself and this topic that you're going to cover about difficult people. And why do you have a passion about that? Well, thank you, Hugh. It's great seeing you again. Nice talking with you this afternoon. Yeah, you know, I grew up on a hog and dairy farm in southern Minnesota, and I was the youngest of four sons, no sisters. And I guess communication skills uh, were pretty important because I grew up in a position-centered family, not a person-centered family where everyone would have an equal say or an equal vote. No, there was a true hierarchy in the family where my dad had the most authority, then my mom, and then it went from oldest to youngest. And and I was the youngest. So what would happen around the dining room table is my dad would say something, then my mom would say something, then Cabot, Kelly, Corey, and then they changed the subject. And I always had a terrible time getting into the conversation. But in 4-H, I could get up in front of a club once a month and give a five or 10 minute speech without interruption. And well, really, I haven't stopped since. Then I went to a state university about 45 miles down the road and became a college dropout. I left college after my junior year when a little manufacturing company came up for sale in my hometown. And the reason the business was for sale is because the gentleman that had started the company in 1972 had already suffered a massive heart attack by 1983. So it looked like something I should get involved with. <laughs> and it was a stressful business. The presentation I deliver most often is called STP, Stress time and procrastination management. Coincidentally, the presentation or the topic we'll be discussing today, handling difficult people, is my second most often requested topic. So I don't know if there was a correlation there or not when I was in manufacturing. But during that very same time, I was a trustee for a Presbyterian church for seven years. Then I had left those manufacturing companies to go into the speaking business. I used to take my staff to Sioux Falls or Spencer, Iowa or Mankato, Minnesota, anywhere Dale Carnegie or Skill Path or Career Track were offering seminars. And we always found that we could go there for a few hours and learn information we could apply for a few years. And so I thought, you know, I am maybe going to have a greater impact as an outsider than being a person inside my own companies or organizations. So I went back to school, finished my undergraduate degree, picked up a master's degree in speech and business. And since 1991, I've been running around trying to get people to work together better and helping them get more done in less time with clear and concise communication. So I've delivered about, oh, 3,500 or so presentations over the last 29 years in a variety of different industries, whether they're for-profit or non-profit. And it has been a very fulfilling career and I've really enjoyed it. And it's nice to be here talking about this topic because sometimes, you know, people just need one more tool, just one more method, one more approach, and that can sometimes break a deadlock or repair a relationship that's been damaged because of conflict. Absolutely. And sometimes it's that one thing that pivots. <clears throat> and I often say to my audience, excuse me, that um, 
you may not like me, but if there's one thing that, that stimulates your thoughts or helps you think differently, um, it's been a successful time. So um, you'll laugh at this. I spent a career as a music conductor with my back to the audience. So um, in May of 2007, um, I, I was on stage at a place called CEO Space and um, had to face the audience. <laughs> so I don't know if the person that put me there knew that or not, but I was, I was talking about uh, leadership and uh, actually team building. And, you know, the big screens, you got five, 600 people in the audience. And, you know, it's a lot easier than conducting, but having a look at people is a whole new ball game. Um, so your story ab about presenting, we've, um, and, and so I've, I've been lucky to be on stage with uh, Jack Canfield and Les Brown and um, Jeff McGee, Dan Clark's. Those have all been guests on my show, by the way, oh. and um, and this show. And, um, you know, we're just ordinary people doing our thing. And, and it's, so, so um, having a mindset, a performance mindset, is really important. Let's, let's talk about leadership just a minute before we go into how we um, sometimes set up conflict. Um, it's, it's really important, I think, when, when I was at the conference and helping people think about their presentations, it's not only about the words. The words are important. But research shows that words are like 7% of your communication. There's about 55% here, and then it's the inflection and the rest of the stuff. So as a presenter, it's sort of like um, one of my speaking coaches was a drama professor. Mm -hmm. And we didn't talk about content at all. We talked about where I was going to stand. So as a leader, why is it important for us to have really good presentation skills? You know, I have a little presentation I entitled, Become a Leader People Would Like to Follow. And one of the things I cite is a study by Dr. David W. Johnson that talked about the six criteria of personal credibility, six things we need to put in place to be most effective on a daily basis with the people we work alongside. One of them was to consistently appear warm and friendly, to be approachable. People have a question, they feel comfortable to approach you. You're even keeled, pleasant to be around. The second is that you express your intentions and motives, short-term plans, long-term goals, so people know what you're up to. It removes a lot of the you know, suspicion. And I think that's critical when it comes to conflict resolution too. And then you follow through with what you said you're going to do. You demonstrate trustworthiness. People would bet the farm. You're going to call at 10 o'clock. You're going to stop by at 3 o'clock. And then you're an information source. You've done a little bit of work and know, knowable information, what's pinned, pasted, posted on the wall, the guidebooks, handbooks, websites. And you've also developed a certain amount of relevant expertise that in certain areas of what you do, you know more about that than most people and your employees or staff or other members of your board seek you out for the answers about those things because you're the resident expert, you're the in-house expert. You know more about that than anybody else. And then the last is to project dynamism, which is natural enthusiasm. Dynamism isn't that you're doing calisthenics and jumping jacks in between meetings and phone calls, but when you walk in a room, the lights get a little bit brighter rather than a little bit dimmer. When you come to work, people are happy to see you rather than resenting the fact you showed up again today. And I think if we can start our day that way and we embed those principles in our presentations too, uh, people will trust us. It's what we say, it's how we say it. If they know we have a history of following through, we're just not making suggestions. This is actually something we're going to accomplish. And I think if we project that dynamism, natural enthusiasm, which comes from practice and preparation to make sure what we're going to say comes across in the right fashion, to be clear and concise, to make sure we fill in the blanks so people don't fill it in with something else. It'd be hard for people not to want to rally behind that idea and to move the organization forward. So I think there needs to be this, oh, kind of a framework in place in our conduct, uh, that when we pull in the parking lot, walk towards a building, walk into a meeting and start presenting, it's pretty, con pretty consistent, pretty congruent. We really do uh, live up to our own reputation in a way. So we're always, as leaders, we're always presenting, whether we know it or not. It's one-to-one -one conversation. So all of those things come to bear. Yeah, and one of the uh, kind of the constructs for communication that I share with many of my audiences is something that I came across called the SEER method of explanation. You make a statement, you explain it, you give an example and you restate it. And it follows people's natural train of thought. 
if I say something and you're not quite sure what that is, you're thinking, I wonder what that is. And then all of a sudden I'm just casually explaining it. Then you're thinking, oh, I wonder how that works. And then I give you a couple of examples and you go, oh, and then you're wondering, what did you call that again? And then I restate what it was that I said. Instead of saying to people you work with, I know this is very complicated, let me simplify it for you. Ugh, you know, nothing more demoralizing than that. Just simplify it for them. And I also teach that that's what we should do as a listener too. If we have somebody in a leadership position that says something and we're not quite sure what it is, we should ask a what question. With a what question, we're gonna get an explanation or we'll get a definition. And if that isn't enough, then we ask a how question because then we'll get an example or a description of how that concept would play out or be implemented. And then ask if they could restate that and you call that what again? And so, you know, most of the time I find in committees or boards or in groups, you know, there's a couple of other people that aren't quite sure too or either about what that leader is saying. And so if you have the courage or the, uh, I guess, uh, calmness to ask a casual question to, to fill in the blanks, it benefits everybody sitting around the table or, or that's in the room that will be affected by that decision. So there's, a, um, I'm probing the leadership side of this, and we're going to get into your topic here, I promise. But, um, but there's a lot <clears throat> that we do that really sets up uh, a conflict situation. Now, we're talking about difficult people, but we, we really need the conflict management skills to address it. And so um, it, it takes a lot of guts to stand up in front of people and speak on a topic. Um, I, in it's almost easier to speak to a group of 500 than it is a group, group of five, I think, because a group of 500 will turn on you fast. <laughs> the five, they're going to be a little more polite because you're right in front of them. So um, how, how, is there some self-talk that you use? Um, here's a, here was a pivot moment for me. Twice I had to follow Les Brown on stage and the mistake I made was to being in the room when he was speaking. And everybody's like, yeah, wild, and it's crazy. And he goes out and there's people hanging on him. There was a break. So one particular time I was wearing my tails. So I went on, this is what a conductor knows about leadership. So it was really a supercharged. And I grab an audience right away. So I'm getting ready, tying my white bow tie, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I got to follow that? What am I going to do? I don't know those kinds of jokes. And I just took a minute. This is an authenticity moment for me. I looked in the mirror and I said, you're going to go out there and you're going to be Hubaloo. So speak about the confidence of leaders, because uh, I see leaders even in groups that are doubting themselves, and then they send confusing messages. So there's an authenticity that we come, that we claim what we know. But we also don't know everything. So how do we have this security piece that we can take this mantle of leadership and be effective communicators. Yeah, you know, I think being organized in our thoughts is critical. They always say, you know, the more organized the conversation, the more credibility you have in it. So if we have planned our remarks carefully, and I think if we have those first few sentences that we're going to say down pat, pretty clear of how we're going to start. And one of the techniques I use is to deep breathe and that's also when I'm gonna go into a meeting or make a phone call where I know there's gonna be a lot of tension or conflict or I'm gonna to have to deal with somebody that has you know, historically been difficult to uh, have a conversation with. And I inhale five, I hold 15, I exhale slowly for 10, and I do that four times. Now it takes two minutes, but it's kind of magical because it gives the heart an opportunity to pump the blood through the system twice. And oxygenated blood is fuel for the brain and you've just gone from unleaded gas to jet fuel. You're quicker thinking, you're more articulate, you have more vocabulary available to you and quicker wit. The other thing it does is it expands your lung capacity to nearly 80%. It gives you a short-term benefit of being a long distance runner and you don't have to do all that running. But it expands your lung capacity to the point that it lowers the pitch of your voice, it softens the tone of your voice, you sound warm and cooperative even if you're not. And it also provides that tremendous reservoir of, of oxygen coming through your vocal cords that you sound it takes the quiver or any of the hesitancy out of your voice. And so I think that's a great little kind of uh, run through in my mind that I know what I'm going to say in the order I'm going to say it. I'm doing the deep breathing. And so by the time I get to the front of the room, everything's in place. 
almost kind of a choreographing those five minutes before you present. That's what a, <clears throat> a performer, like a singer does. You know, there's all the warm up and you do the, the articulator things and you, you do all of that. So um, my drama coach taught me all of those things and I've never thought about, well, it's the same routine that a singer uses to warm up and the stretching and the breathing and that stuff. That's really good advice. And sometimes with our teams, whether it's a church or a nonprofit or multinational business, um, there are people that have a difference of opinion. <laughs> and um, I know it's hard to believe, but there are people who have a difference of opinion and aren't afraid of challenging things. So I think what you started earlier to talk about is the centrality of what we teach at Center Vision. If we're entrepreneurs, we're social entrepreneurs, we're, we're running a, a for-purpose business that's, that's got a lot of rules because it's tax exempt, but it's the same gig as in a, in a business that's multinational. But um, so the centrality of our leadership is in that, that document, the plan, the strategic plan, which is like the musical score for a conductor. Everything that happens is written down and everybody playing or singing has their part. So the analogy that I teach is you got a piece of paper, which is your strategic plan. It's only a piece of paper. So as the leader, you're the one that, that integrates it into performance. So there's, there's the big gap there. Now, your big point is such a huge, huge piece of this, being clear, being concise, and I would think that clear is also precise. Leaders aren't really good at defining the specific outcomes they want. So we leave people confused. And to me, part of the work that goes into the planning strategy is you have specific long-term objectives and short-term goals, and then the team can start rallying around their part of that. So um, talk about how that either sets up or prevents, well, we don't prevent conflict because conflict's really a sign of energy, but we can certainly lower the amount of bad conflict, can't we? So how do we, how do we prevent doing that as leaders? And then if there's confusion, how do we address it? Yeah, those are, those are great questions, and I'm going to try to pick them off one at a time. You know, you mentioned the word precision. I always like leaders to really be accurate in the words they choose to use. Are you happy? Are you thrilled? Are you worried? Are you concerned? One time I read a book that claimed there's 3,400 words in the English language for feelings and emotions, and Dr. Robin Lakoff has men how many feelings and emotions they have. They listed an average of eight Women listed an average of 14, which is 11 words on the average we use to describe a possible 3,400 different feelings and emotions. So we want accuracy in the words we choose to use to set the right tone. I also believe we should use simple words. Everyone feels comfortable with and can understand. I think uh, if a longer, less familiar word can be substituted with a shorter, more familiar word, we want to do that. I don't think we impress people with a large vocabulary. I think we can drive people away. I think people rather feel informed rather than ignorant. I grew up ignorant, so it doesn't bother me. People use a great big word. I say, is that one word or two? <laughs> How do you spell that? What does that mean? But most people aren't as confident with their ignorance as I am, and they have a little bit of a thin skin, and so they might think you're talking down to them. So we want to use simple words. Everyone feels comfortable with, can understand. Also want to provide coherence. You know, there's three things I'm going to talk about, this, this, and this, and you do that in that order. And also language intensity, I think, is critical. We can talk about you know, leaders, uh, we can talk about coaches, we can talk about mentors, or we can talk about managers or supervisors, or we could talk uh, you know, in highly negative language intensity like the boss or the brass. Same people, same positions, nothing's changed except the language we use to describe that. And I think one of the things that makes conflict uncomfortable is just the word conflict. I think if we use a more neutral term, like we're going to have a variety of different opinions, we have a variety of different perspectives. We have uh, different insights that I would like us to share. Uh, if we say to the people in our group, let's alter cast ourselves into the different people that will be affected by this decision. If I was a parishioner, how would I feel? If I was a chamber of commerce in town, how would I feel? If, if I was a, a small business person, you know, so whoever's going to be affected by the issue, see if we can see it from that perspective. And I think if we change conflict, to disagreement or difference of opinion or you know a more neutral term, I think it takes some of the sting out of it. And so we, we I really find if we are going to have seven percent of the impact, 
is in the words we choose to use, and you're running a million dollar organization, that's a $70,000 account. Somebody would notice if the money's missing. And people notice it in conversation too. And when we're on the phone, 20% of the impact is what we say, 80% how we say it. So you really gotta warm up the pipes before you make that phone call or take that phone call. And then when we commit things to writing, that's 100%. And that's why people read between the lines trying to figure out what we meant by what we wrote. So the other thing I always want leaders to keep in mind too is that we all have four intentions when we come to work, to get things done. And if we're gonna do it, we could just well do it well, so to get it right. And since we spend so much time together, it should be nice if we could get along. And then when we do good work, it sure is nice to hear appreciation. But if those intentions aren't fulfilled, then people exaggerate their behavior to get something else. If people want to get it done and they fear it's not going to get done, they become controlling. And when people fear they, you know, want to, they want to get something done right and it's going to be done wrong, well, now they become perfectionistic. And then when people want to get along and they feel left out, they're going to exaggerate their behavior to become more approval seeking, do all sorts of personal favors, but not get their work done. And then when somebody wants to get appreciation for what they're doing and they don't hear it, well, they're going to exaggerate their behavior and get some attention around here or go silent, at least get some attention because they didn't feel the appreciation. And they kind of turn into people we can't stand. So I always ask leaders to make sure you touch all four bases, whether it's in a phone call or face-to-face -face conversation or in an email, that we're going to get this done. We're going to get it done right. We get along and I appreciate you. And so just yesterday, I was delivering a presentation called Leadership Excellence that's sponsored by a community and technical college north of town. And uh, I said, you know, so it'd be this simple for me to simply say to the person that hired me, Amanda, you know, we started on time, we ended on time. So that, you know, got it done. I thought it went pretty well, so we got it done right. I sure enjoyed working with you. We got along and I look forward to seeing you next Monday for session two. Now, how long does it take to say those four things? Well, I've timed it. It takes six seconds. So if you had 50 phone calls in a day or 50 interactions in a day, it'd only take five minutes out of your day to sprinkle that magic pixie dust that we're gonna get it done, we're gonna get it done right, we get along and I appreciate you. But if you don't do that, you're gonna spend the other nine hours and 55 minutes of the day dealing with people who become controlling, perfectionistic, approval seeking and demanding attention, which is exhausting. So those are the kind of things I suggest to leaders to get really clear on what it is that you're sharing with the people you're leading. I was gonna ask you to identify what's a difficult person. I think you just did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's usually when, you know, one of those intentions aren't being fulfilled. They can become a tank when they're controlling, you know, and you picture them just like a tank rolling down the hallway, you know, to kind of bombard you in a way. And, and if you are dealing with a tank, you say, I want to get it done too. And this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm approaching it. With a tank, you don't say some of us were talking because they'll say who, or maybe we could do this. Maybe there's no such thing as maybe to a tank. You either do or you don't. So you speak in I language. I will. I'm going to. I have. And they'll respect you. They'll think everybody else is a fool, but they'll, they'll respect you and you just take personal responsibility. But if you're dealing with a know-it-all that wants to get it done and they know how to get it done, they've been getting it done for years, well, then you have to really kind of know your stuff to ask good questions. Are you concerned we're gonna run out of time? Are you concerned we're gonna run out of money? And, and then present your ideas indirectly. Perhaps we could do this or maybe we could do that. And then to always compliment them and say, wow, you know what? You seem to know more about this than anybody else I work with. And they'll just love you. But then again, you have people that are snipers, you know, that want to control you by offhand comments or, you know, saying things that kind of shred your self-esteem. And one of, the, one of the things you can do is just kind of stop and, and, and slowly turn to them and say, I'm sorry, what did you say? And ask them to repeat the insult. Sometimes they won't. Or ask simply, what does that have to do with this? Kind of points out how ridiculous their comment is. And then you can just move on and say, I'd like to get this done and I'm sure we'll get along and just kind of brush it off and move forward. And if they do say something about you, you know, to other people, just to next time you see them say, you know, I've heard that you said this about me to so-and-so. Is that true? You know, if there's a problem in our relationship, I'd love to talk with you one-on-one. -on -one. I, I assume we'll get along and they'll go pick on somebody else. Or they might stop that behavior, which is rare, but they might stop it. You, you mentioned respect. Um, <laughs> that kind of went by. I think it's more important. We deal with this, um, I do, and I know other leaders do. I want people to like me. And so I'm not going to challenge people because they might not like me. And what you just outlined was you make principle-based decisions. And so you respond based on the principle. And then the people would respect you because if you cave in and do something 
that you think they want you to do, they're not going to either like you or respect you in the, in the, in the end. That's a great point. Yes. You know, I'm really, as a leader, I'd rather be respected than liked, but I think people like a leader they respect. So I think it kind of is a dance. You, I think you create one by being principled, you know, in your, in your decisions or the, the way you approach that conversation. And, you know, you maybe, you know, uh, can always agree on the principle. You know, I have this little uh, module that I include on responding non-defensively to criticism. And one of those is you can agree on the principle. Yeah, you're right. You know, I, I do work longer hours than other people, and it probably is, you know, unhealthy. And this is important work. So you reinforce that what we're doing is extremely important. And, and you're right, you know, I may not be taking care of myself, but you always want to return to what the foundation is or that principle. This is important work. And so you can agree on the principle. You can also agree with the, their perception. You can agree with the facts. You can uh, uh, agree that uh, uh, you can also ask what, what consequences your behavior is having on them, which is kind of an interesting conversation. So, you know, sometimes we deal in conflict with a lot of the symptoms, but we don't dig in to figure out what the cause is. And I think if we're pretty good at accepting criticism non-defensively, I think people are more willing to get to the root of the problem instead of just dealing with symptoms, which really never solved the issue. Well, and sometimes, yes, absolutely. We want to put a Band-Aid on it and just be nice and move on and just kind of reflect it, deflect it. So um, a lot of good stuff in that narrative. Thank you folks on Facebook for the, uh, the likes. Please share it and like it. Um, there's a lot of really good, meaty suggestions in this. Um, so, so we do have people that are difficult, but there's also people that ask difficult questions. Now, that's a very different dynamic. I always, if I'm doing a planning team, for instance, in the church, I'll do a planning team for a concert, and I always have one person that was not an insider that I knew would ask difficult questions, but they were a team player. They weren't a different, difficult person. So how does a leader make that differentiation between somebody that's really a team player and not trying to give you heartburn, but they're asking difficult questions, which we need to hear? Yeah, one of the ways I do that is a little technique I call, well, I'm sure everybody calls it perception checking. So if somebody asks a pointed question or a leading question, I'll just casually restate or rephrase it slightly. And I'll say, are you saying that because, and then I'll have one interpretation of what they said, or, or are you saying that because, and then I have a second interpretation, and then I ask a clarifying question, or which is it? So my whole goal when someone asks a question like that is to continue the conversation. I think one of the mistakes we make in conflict is we try to get it over as quickly as possible because we think it is so uncomfortable for everybody else in the room. But if we can stretch it out and have more of a conversation and be more casual about it, it really, I think, takes down the anxiety of everybody else in the room. And perception checking, I think, is fantastic. And the first time you do that to someone that's like that, they look, they look at you like you, you just sprouted a third eyeball in the middle of your forehead, because most people don't do that. So if they said, you know, what a dumb policy, who thinks this stuff up anyway? I would probably just kind of, you know, look thoughtful and say, so when you say it's a dumb policy and you're kind of wondering who, who thinks up this stuff, are you saying that the, you think the policy is too restrictive or do you think the policy isn't, isn't very clear or, or what are you thinking? And I usually will try to have one interpretation that's pretty close and one that's kind of a throwaway. So there's somewhere in between, you know, they can come back with a, a different perception or a different uh, description of what they're thinking or what they're asking about. But it, it's a lot of fun because you, you, the more they talk, the better they feel. And it also then expands the conversation to a, another variety of perspectives that they may have not considered and, and other people might be thinking that are in the room. So I, I think taking a control of the conversation rather than a, being a victim of it. And a great way to do that is through that perception checking. We, we, had a, our, we had a rule in our home with the kids that if they ever slammed their bedroom door, the, the door came off the hinges. And I would carry it down to the other end of the house to our bedroom, and a week later, I'd put the door back on. And the first two kids figured that out pretty quickly, and they quit slamming their door. But that youngest daughter, uh, she didn't catch on to that too quickly. And man, they're solid wood doors. And I, 
I was getting kind of tired of carrying that door down the hallway. So my wife and I were having a conversation with her that she didn't really enjoy. And she got up and stormed down the hallway and slammed her bedroom door. And my wife said, well, get the hammer and the screwdriver. And I said, you know, can I, can I try something else this time? And she goes, yeah, go ahead. So I waited a couple of minutes. And then I went down the hallway and I went, and I said, Bree, and there's a long pause. And she says, yes. And I said, I noticed you stopped down the hallway and slammed your bedroom door. Was that because you're upset with something your mother and I said, or is it because it slipped out of your hands? Ooh. Which is it? Ooh. There's another long pause and she says, slipped out of my hands? <laughs> and I said, well, please don't do that again. Okay. And then I realized something. I think she was slamming the door because it was her way of getting back at me that I'd have to pull the pins and carry that door down the hallway. So I took the fun out of that and that she never really slammed her door again. <laughs> so sometimes difficult people are getting something out of it. You know, by being nasty or being mean, they might be the center of attention or they might be getting their way. You know, I have a couple of books over here. One's called The Psychopath Test. One's called The Sociopath Next Door. You know, in the general population, you know, there's a certain percentage of people that are sociopaths. And then certain leaders, too, can be sociopaths. I mean, anybody could be a sociopath. And so uh, it doesn't bother them, you know, and, but uh, there's something that people that are difficult get out of being difficult. And sometimes they're just a difficult personality. It's just they were born with uh, that kind of a, I have a brother that I don't get along with very well, too. I get along with very easily. The other two brothers don't really get along with that brother that well either. It's just, it's a difficult personality. But some people are strategically difficult. They know when they're going to be difficult. They know when they're going to complain at customer service to get something out of it. They're going to complain to the waiter or waitress to get something out of it. And, or they know they're going to get a better deal or a discount. You know, they're, they're choosing to be. And then, uh, so it's strategic. So we got to figure out whether it's just a technique or if it's if their personality. And sometimes you just have to pick, take a big old dose of acceptance. That's, that's just the way they are. Or, you know, if it's strategic, we can figure out some ways to respond rather than react and not take it personally. That's brilliant. And, and what, in all of that that you've just talked about, it's um, remaining the leader, remaining in charge, and not letting the emotion flood your brain so you do something stupid. And, and you know, I've been there. Like I said, I've made more mistakes than anybody else. And, I, you know, you can say one thing and one mildly um, assaulting comment can become nuclear because you said, and I think one thing that it, when you're coming back at somebody is in my world is don't use the word you, you talked about I language, you know, once you put, say you, it's a defensive. Uh, and there's a book, um, addition to those books, there's a book um, specifically about church. It's called antagonists in the church by an author named Hauk, H-A-U-K. And, and through that whole book is the, you know, I thought in a 12,000 member church, there were six antagonists, but it seemed like more because they moved around a lot. But the, his point was, you have to deal with them differently. Mm -hmm. And I never really understand that until I spent three years teaching middle school, and you just don't do things normally in middle school, because they want you to do more. So it's how do we know that we're feeding into a dysfunction? Or if it's a really legitimate pain. So talk about that, and then go into some more reasons of why you think people are difficult people. Sure, sure. I think one of the keys when you mentioned that we uh, take control or at least be in control of our emotions when we're in a conflict situation or stressful conversation is to really understand our emotions so we can respond appropriately. And there's kind of, I, I always believe there's five stages of that. You know, all information simply comes through our senses. It's what we hear. It's uh, what, what we see. And the more we get in, you know, the better, the more accurate our interpretation, which is the second step would be, which is intellectual. Why did a person say this? Why did a person do this? How come this happened? So all information comes through our senses. It's just raw data. Then it's the interpretation, which is intellectual. Then what immediately follows is the feeling. And once we're trapped in that emotional state, it limits our options and what we would say or what we would do when we feel like that. But as leaders, we need to pick or select our best option and express that one. So uh, when I, I kind of approach it like, a, like going to a buffet or a smorgasbord. I could have the beef, 
I could have the pork, I could have the chicken, I could have the fish, and I could have the salad. But I have that kind of flexibility when I go to the buffet. We should have that same kind of flexibility as a leader in how we respond. There, you know, there's tasks or activities in which we have total control, and there's tasks and activities in which we have some control. Total control, what we eat. I've never accidentally eaten anything. I'm, I'm sure you haven't either. Uh, my attitude, I can manage my own morale. You know, I can uh, do some positive affirmations, positive visualization, pay myself some compliments when nobody else is. I can manage my morale pretty well. Uh, uh, what I say, I don't know if you're like me, but I spend a lot of my time biting my tongue. And I think if leaders kind of stop and think, you know, this is kind of a funnel and I gather information and if I change my interpretation or add a different one to it, it, it creates a different feeling, which gives me a different menu to select my best response. And, you know, I, I came across a, a book called uh, High Performance, no, it's, uh, um, oh, what was the book? Uh, anyway, it said that we think at, because many people are visual, we think at 800 to 1200 words per minute. So it only takes a few minutes for us to collect our thoughts, that old idea, and, and our thoughts that will create those feelings and then those options and, and what we're going to express. So that, that's the part of it I think that we just need to keep in mind. There's no hurry. I think people are always feeling rushed or they have to have a, a quip or a quick response when they're in a conflict situation. And you really don't because no one's signed anything yet. We haven't reached an agreement yet. We haven't drafted agreements that we you know and so i think of people are more patient with it being a conversation so I, I think that's pretty pretty important what you did in that analogy with the accusation is you turned it into a conversation <laughs> and, and that just that's a really important tool now um if we're a leader we're a leader everywhere and what um, Richard Rohr says in his books and, and writings and speeches is how we do anything is how we do everything. And, and so we can't be a different person in different places. <clears throat> so the things that you're talking about work in our church committee, work at the workplace, work at home, work in our social settings. And it's not as much, um, like you said, boss, you, one of those words, which is a bad word, especially if you spell it backwards. Um, <laughs> It's, it's um, the, the image of who we are as a leader, I think is crucial. And sometimes people aren't attacking us, they're attacking a concept. So, some, so dig a little more into difficult people and why would they, um, what you talked about is, is more of an a, attack kind of thing. So, or at least it's felt or perceived as an attack because we care about what we're doing and we got ourselves invested. So how do we separate all that? So it's not about us. Yeah. You know, sometimes the, the attack, it might be someone's, uh, you know, wants something done correctly, you know, perfectly. And when, when the person approaches it that way, it could be that, you know, something had happened in the past, then it was done poorly and keep and people keep reminding them of that one time or, uh, you know, once you've tarnished a reputation, it'll never be the same. So sometimes it's hard for people to distinguish between old wounds and new conflicts. And sometimes I think people that want things done correctly or precisely uh, struggle with that. And uh, so one of the ways I, I like to uh, approach that is when someone's perfectionistic is to, you know, talk about the th what I call the three cues, quickness, quantity, and quality. And uh, then it kind of spreads out the conversation in, in three different ways. If we're talking about quantity being most important, well then quickness and quality will be affected. And if we really want quality to be the most important thing, well then quickness and quantity will probably be effective. And if quickness is what seems to be the most important aspect of the, of the conflict, well then quantity and quality may be affected. So I always like to compromise or negotiate those three cues whenever I am in a conversation with somebody that's pretty wound up because they think something's going to be done poorly and they don't want to be attached to that. Uh, sometimes you have people that I call grenades that are starving for appreciation. Yeah. And it could be uh, while uh, you, know, you have a meeting that you have to go to and you're gone for an afternoon and you ask someone to cover for you and you come back and you say, how'd it go while I was gone? And they just 
they just kind of blow up, you know. They've been working hard, they've been taking your phone calls, they've been checking your email, and and, and you just casually walk in and say, how, how to go while I was gone? They go, how to go while you're gone? You know, I've been doing my job and doing your job, and they just blow up, and you just kind of wave them down and say, I know, you, I know you've been working hard. I wouldn't ask anybody else to cover for me. And then you get away from them. So they can pick what up, pick up whatever they've knocked over. They can wipe the spit off their shirt or blouse and, <laughs> and uh, the stars will go away. And then you'll come back and, and say, so how did it go while I was gone? And, and you know, they'll be a little lightheaded, but they'll be much more comfortable. So the key is to recognize what it is that sets them off. And I'll give you an example. My oldest brother is a police officer. And uh, sometimes he'll call me when I'm somewhere delivering a speech or seminar and he'll leave a voicemail message and this is all he'll say. Hey, this is your brother, call me. So when I get down with the seminar or the workshop, I'll get on my phone, I'll call him and he may still be at work and he'll say, hey, quit calling me at work. I'm responsible for every minute, 10 hours a day, I'll call you later. And I'm, I used to think, well, wait a minute, you told me to call you. Then I realized he was a grenade. So when I call back, this is the first thing I say to him. How's the hardest working man in law enforcement? And I get this instead. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm the hardest working man in law enforcement, but I'm crunching crime. <laughs> Completely different tone. Once we recognize what they're starving for, all we need to do is spoon feed that right at the beginning of the conversation, and then they don't exactly get the appreciation that they're hoping for. So I love that technique. And then sometimes we have people that are really nice people uh, sometimes we call them yes people. They say yes to every request that people make for them uh, or make of them or for them, from them. Anyway, they, they get themselves caught up in so much social maintenance activities, they don't get their work done. And so you have to sit down and talk to them like friends and talk about, uh, you know, the deadline and how could we make sure we don't miss our deadline. You had mentioned the, you know, the word you. Uh, I, I sometimes call that the language of responsibility. I, me, you, we, us, our. Sometimes they're the smallest word in the conversation, but they have quite a bit of impact on whether you're accepting or shirking responsibility. So with a person that wants to get along with everybody, you just kind of sit down and say, what could we do differently so we don't miss our deadline? And they'll say, I don't know, because they don't want you they don't want to share their idea because if you don't like their idea, they think you don't like them. So you say, how about if I, you know, like email you a week before, would that help? Yeah, write it down. They will. If I call you two days before, would that help? Yeah. Okay. Write that down. I'll email you a week before. Stop by two, I'll call you two days before. How about if I stop by that morning to make sure that everything's on track for that meeting at noon? And they say, okay. And you'll do that. And then you'll stop by at noon on Friday. It won't be done. And, and, and so you say, you know, that's not like you. And they'll, they'll do 27 double takes. That's not like me, you know? No, you usually get your work done for me. And then you let them know the negative impact it had on other people because they want to get along with everybody. So you can use a certain amount of the social pressure that they let other people down, not just you. And then when they do follow through and they do get it done, you say, you know what, that's just like you. You get your work done for me. And it will be true, they will. They will get your work done for you. But then sometimes we, we deal with people that are in a double bind, what I call uh, silent people where they want to get it done right and they want to get along, but uh, they kind of say nothing. It's, uh, they might come up to you and say, you know, this has been going on every once in a while. And, you, and you'll say, how, how often? And you'll, you know, that's about all you're gonna get like this. So you gotta take the pressure off and you say, does it happen every five minutes or so? And they go, no, no, it doesn't happen that often. Well, once every couple months or so? Now they're wondering, was that this month or was that last month? Because they want to be right, and they don't want to say something that could damage the relationship. And they say, well, more often than that, so uh, once a day or so? Was that today or was that? No, not that often. So once a month or so? And they're thinking there's 28 days in February, there's 31 days in March, but if you go over the five-day work week, that'd be that's how bound up tight they are. So we sometimes have to just have a conversation where we expand to the exaggerated possibilities to take the pressure off to get to the to the answer so you know I, I i always go back to those four intentions get it done get it done right get along get appreciation it's a great place to start but then again one percent of the population is ruthless where all you can do is save yourself <laughs> yeah, but like i said they move around a lot they do <laughs> when i deal with somebody that i know is ruthless i kind of think of them like a character in a movie or a play and uh, sometimes, you know, I'll just expect it. You know, they'll be grumpy or grouchy or disagree with me. Then I don't, it doesn't really bother me. 
And one of the things I suggest to people when they work on teams or if they're in an organization that's going through quite a bit of change, which could be caused by the pandemic, is to really see yourself as a consultant to become a good failer. Not failer, but failer, F-A-L-E-R. Ask questions, make suggestions, fail. Ask questions, make suggestions, fail. But the more comfortable we are doing that as a leader, the more comfortable other people are to share their creative ideas too. And it might not be the ideas we need right now to solve the problem, but it might be exactly the ideas we need a week from now or a month from now. And if we can openly kind of brainstorm or share those ideas without the fear you know, of failure or ridicule or embarrassment, you know, we kind of create a third reservoir of knowledge that never existed before, which might be that perfect or at least best uh, choice we could make. But we got to make sure that we are the example to be that vulnerable to make suggestions that, that don't fly, that, pe you know, you, that people won't salute when we send it up the flagpole. But we have to be, and one of the things I love about the, the clients that I work with long-term is when the CEO, COO, or the uh, directors, or CFO, or controller is in the, in the training with everybody else. And they're asking questions and saying, now, how would I say that if I was dealing with this? And I just love that, whether it's learning new technology for their organization, or if it's a leadership development academy, they, you know, they're in the class, you see the full support. I just love that when leaders are learners and they are listeners and they set the example for other people in the room. I, I just love it when they do it. Um, that ought to be mandatory. <laughs> yeah. It should be. I was working with a commercial cleaning company in the northern suburbs that cleaned a lot of giant office buildings and they wanted uh, my seminar on world-class customer service. And so we had a four-week series on a Saturday morning. The owner was there the first day and stopped by the last day, but the two days in between he left and had gone to his cabin and everybody knew it. And here we were on a Saturday morning and you could just tell how it had a negative impact on the morale, how it had a negative impact on the enthusiasm of the employees because the leader didn't show up must not be that important. Here we are on a Saturday and they're at the lake. Isn't that a large part of why people act out some issues is because they don't feel like they're being treated with respect or importance or being acknowledged. Isn't that a part of it? Yeah. Yeah. So what I do in my seminars is I have my, uh, in groups come up with five different ways they can tell people it's going to get done five different ways. They could say something's going to get done right five different ways that we get along and five ways to show appreciation. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your support. Thank, you know, I really appreciate your effort. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for complaining. I mean, we, we could, we could thank people for their opinion. Uh, thank you for uh, bringing that to my attention. Thank I mean, I, I don't think we could go too heavy on uh, giving appreciation and restoring value in the relationships with the people we lead. Now, sometimes we blow it. Sometimes we make mistakes and we damage relationships and it might be you know, unintentional consequence. And uh, there's a little repair model, R-E-P-A-I-R, -E that I use that seems to really help. And the R stands for recognize what the problem is both intellectually and emotionally. And so sometimes mechanically, we know what to do, but what's the emotional attachment to those behaviors? And then engage in productive communication. I've noticed, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, uh, something's been kind of haunting me lately. So you got to be vulnerable enough to engage in productive communications. And then the P stands for pose, possible solutions. And sometimes I've had uh, clients that the relationships are so damaged that the only thing I get them to agree to is to say good morning to each other for the next six weeks. But it's about enough time that we create a new communication pattern. And somewhere in the fourth week, when the person comes in and says, good morning, good morning, the next day they say, good morning, good morning. And it's like, ah, it sounded like I meant it. You know, the hair stands up. Oh, it sounded like they meant it. And, and, and you start to get, but then sometimes, you know, it doesn't take. But I'll tell you what, on the seventh week, when that person walks in and does not say good morning, you notice it right away. Something's missing. Mm -hmm. And usually that person will find them in the break room and say, hey, you know, you, you didn't say good morning this morning. Well, six weeks are up. Ooh, you know, I, I kind of miss it now, you know. So we oppose possible solutions. Then the A stands affirm each other complement each other, hold each other to the agreement until it integrates the I into normal behavior. But somebody has to take the risk. And employees may not want to take the risk because they're already intimidated by your position as a leader or your title. So I think it's critical for leaders to be the person that takes the risk, to say, I've noticed, or I've become aware of, or 
I, I don't know if you feel the same way I do, but you know, there's, and I think people need to know you before they'll trust you. And I think leaders need to be willing to, you know, really, you know, it has to be relevant to the relationship and appropriate to the situation, but to share what they think and how they feel and to be, you know, very clear about that. And then I believe other people will honestly share what they think and how they feel because they don't see a downside to it because you've just demonstrated there isn't anything really at risk except open and honest communication. And I think conflict's kind of a byproduct of open and honest communication. Often when I work with teams, they'll say, you know, need you to come in and give a team building seminar. Well, how come? Because there's a lot of conflict. Well, actually, you might need a conflict resolution seminar. <laughs> Conflict's a good sign on the team. That means people are still willing to tell each other what they think and how they feel. Yeah. It's energizing. You know, that's why we have a team. You know? It's not it's a work a group. You know? It's a sign everybody's not a yes person and you got some thinking people. Actually, yeah, it's actually, always interesting. You know, you can't believe people think that way, you know, and yeah. I think there's better, uh, uh, better decisions when there's some disagreement because people point out weaknesses or maybe uh, areas that could be improved or, and, or, or could be modified to be more effective. But if we don't create that supportive communication climate for the, the disagreement and the sharing of those opinions and perspectives, I think we miss out on a lot of great decisions or great ideas that could really change an industry, change, change the organization for sure. I'm going to highlight a couple of things you, you said this time and last time. Um, underlying communication is relationship. And, you know, you talked about relation, you just, you mentioned it in passing, but that, to me, that's one of the key components of all of this. And what you've demonstrated is you've actually treated person, a person as a person, you know, it's not, you're not just a worker or a means to an end, it's a person. So, and you, and then reframing and repeating or clarifying the comment. And then sometimes people hear, feel really embarrassed to, to hear their words come back to them. And so, and, but what you did in both of those, and this is uh, in the writings of Murray Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, Bowen Systems. It's, it's a leadership methodology I have found to be extremely important. Um, I, I teach the work of Burns and Bass, the transformational leadership model, but this one is how we manage ourselves. But uh, Bowen said, it's okay to have empathy for somebody, but you got to get out of it quickly because feeling sorry for somebody is not a productive emotion. And it's, it's an emotional decision, not a thinking decision. So I want you to talk about the emotion and the logical piece of this. But first, before I forget it, um, your website is your last name, W Welch, like grape juice, W-E-L-C-H with L-I-N.com. Yep. Is that your website? That's it. Yep. Just my last name, Welchlin.com. And what will they find when they go there? Well, there's a variety of topics and uh, tons of videos. And also they can go to my YouTube video where there's more than 250 videos. And that's just YouTube backslash Kit Welchlin. And there are Oh, a little episodes with me and a struggling image of me. It's a six camera shoot for about two and a half minutes where uh, I have a struggling image of me. It uh, has a, maybe an issue with change or customer service or difficult people or communicating with the, uh, you know, between men and women or uh, generational. And then I try to help him, me, you know, in two minutes. Sometimes he gets it, sometimes he doesn't, which is part of the fun. But there's more than 250 of those on that website. And then I have another, or that YouTube channel. Then another YouTube channel called seminarsonstress.com or seminars on stress is the uh, YouTube channel. And that's, that has about 50 uh, videos that are free. Uh, and uh, there's a tip sheet too on 30 strategies to manage stress on that website. And you go to the YouTube channel, there's lots of videos, but you know, the empathy thing that you bring up earlier, uh, empathy, I think is one of the most powerful soft skills there is. And you don't lay on it very long, like you say, so what I always tell people is you have to empathize with someone because then they feel normal and then you can redirect them with logic. I, I, can, I, I, I can imagine this, this is awfully frustrating. I am frustrated. And then they feel normal. And this is how we're going to move forward. Or I bet you're pretty excited about the promotion. Promotion excited. Yes, excited. And said, so this is what we're expecting as we, you know, from you in that position. So you blend with the emotion so they feel normal. Then you can redirect them with logic. But unless you address that emotion, they won't listen to the logic. So we want to make sure we put them in a place that they feel comfortable with that emotion. And then we dislodge them to move forward relatively quickly. Now, I don't think we should, you know, dwell on that. You know, compassion fatigue, oh, you know. I always say to people, if you see someone coming towards you with a coffee cup, run for your lives because they'll stand there until it's bone dry and stone cold. So, 
Uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time in every conversation, but and you can't absorb, you know, you got to get in the habit of saying good luck with your problem because you can't absorb and you can't fix everybody's problem. You know, you have plenty of things to do as a leader too, but empathizing just to, to uh, as close as you can get to experiencing sounding like you can feel that emotion in the word and they kind of help, you know, then you're good to move on and, and then redirect. Well, it reminds me a couple of sales tools. You know, one is um, reframing an objection as a request for information. Hmm. which is part of what you did. And this particular one is the uh, feel felt found. Oh, I know yeah. how you feel. I felt that way. But when I got into it, I found this out. And it's not a trick. It's just a clarification. And it's also an acknowledgement of person. You know, you, you okay, thank you. And, and sometimes, you know, in the church, many times I pick a hymn that people didn't like, and they come down the at the end, you know, that finger saying, why did you choose that? And then I would say, well, thank you for that. Let's talk about it. Um, so, you know, acknowledging, um, that they've made a comment to you and not create a triangle with somebody else and talk about you. So I think, and, and the other principle in, in bone systems is move toward conflict calmly and directly and speak the facts, which you've, you've really worked on clarifying those facts. So we're coming up to our last few minutes. Um, and I want to do a, a, a sponsor moment, and then I want to throw it back to you. This has been, um, a really a really helpful session. And, you know, some of these techniques will help us stay focused and calm. And actually, it's to me, uh, leadership and communications have their grounding in relationship. And what you've what you've demonstrated is you value people enough to have the conversation. And we're living in an age right now, where people talk at each other, and not to each other. So I think these are, and this, uh, folks that are listening, you can find this episode at thenonprofitexchange.org, and there'll be a transcription up there tomorrow, and you'll get to pick out some of these really good sound bites. And our, our sponsor is WordSprint, W-O-R-D-S-P-R-I-N-T.com, WordSprint Prints, Nonprofit Performance 360 Magazine. And if you want to stay in touch with your tribe, it's through mail mail. They get something in their hands, it comes in their door, and it's in their mailbox, and it's an envelope like this. And it says, Hugh, this is for you. Nonprofit Performance 360 magazine. It's chock full of really good stuff. WordSprint helps you stay in touch with your donors so they stay donors. With your customers, they stay customers. So it's important. Top of mind marketing. Send them a piece. Tell them what's happening. Tell them what's important. Then you can ask them for money. But make that relationship connection and stay in touch with them. Wordsprint.com. You can get a free consultation and it's brilliant work. And they've got two decades of research and they know exactly what works with direct mail marketing. And I know it works because I get a whole bunch of stuff in my mailbox from companies every day. So it's gone to work. So Kit, this has been uh, the hour. Like I said at the beginning, it's gone whoosh. And I'm sure we could talk for another another several hours on these topics, rich in content, rich in, in things to do. You can find um, Kit at Welchlin, W-E-L-C-H-L-I-N.com. So Kit, what do you want to leave people with today? You got about three minutes. Yeah, I uh, think it's important for us as leaders to not just think about what we're going to say, but also how leaders are listeners. And one of the keys is to figure out why you're listening. Now you can listen to advise and evaluate, but usually the first thing out of our mouth is you should, or you ought to, if I were you, this is what I would do. Or we listen to analyze and interpret. And then what comes out of our mouth is something like, you know what your problem is, you know what's going on here. And uh, not very motivating, because sometimes when I come up to you and I, now, I might not want to be told what I should do or what my problem is. But the other three, like reassuring and supportive, I believe you have good common sense, or I believe you have good communication skills, you'll figure this out. Or, and uh, you've got a good idea, go get them, Tiger. Uh, reassuring and supportive responses are great. Questioning and probing, just asking what or how questions to lead them to their own conclusions. And then the last, paraphrasing and understanding, if I understand you correctly, because we know about three out of four times we don't. You're thinking a certain way if it's more of an intellectual conversation or you're feeling a certain way if it's more emotional. But I like to turn that upside down. And I always ask my leaders to do this. Start out by paraphrasing and understanding and ask what or how questions to lead them to their own conclusion, and then say something reassuring and supportive. And you know what you might not have to do today is tell them what their problem is or what they should do. Wouldn't that be nice? 
I tell you what, even if you put them in a hat and pulled them out randomly, at least three out of five times, you would say something as a listener that was positive. Outstanding. Um, so that my takeaway is leaders have really good questions and they listen carefully. Kit Welchland, um, this has been great. A treasure trove of ideas today. Thank you for being our guest on the Nonprofit Exchange. Thank you. Great seeing you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.